I want to first start by welcoming everyone through these means, at least for right now. It's good to have you all connected in this way, even though we aren't able to be able to connect physically and be in the same facility. It is a joy uh, to be able to have technology like this and gather around God's Word, God's Spirit, God's presence, and at the time, God's people. And I'm just thankful for you all, wherever you may be. We're here on this Lord's Day having to be limited with all that's going on in our world and in our communities, and that have also impacted our churches with COVID-19 and the coronavirus and all that is unfolding literally hour by hour before us. We have to look to God in ways that we probably haven't had to look to Him before. And I'm just thankful to be able to serve you in this particular way and for us to be able to have a chance to look to Him together. We're going to continue to go forward in God's Word, but before we do, I wanted to just encourage our faith family and our church family scattered in homes, apartments, and in places um, that I can't even think of right now. And just want to pray together and believe that with all that's taking place, God is still on His throne and that He is still worth trusting in and that God is good and that He's going to see His people through, through these times. I'm thankful for you. Many of us among the leadership have been praying for our church family and been looking and exploring for ways to be able to serve our people, especially those who are least among us and who are impacted, at least are seen by um, healthcare professionals as those who find themselves within uh, the risk factor groups. And so we just want you to know that we're here for you in any way that we can serve anyone who's among us. You need to know that we're there for you. And so before we get a chance to, to go into God's Word and have a chance to say more, I wanted to pray together with you so that we can get started from there. If you would join me. Father, we come before you right now asking that as we're about to approach our time in your Word, that you would bless this time of ours. As we seek to trust in you in a whole new way, Lord, may we find you to be real and ever-present like never before. I thank you for your church. I thank you for your body. I thank you for the work that is taking place, even with all that is unfolding in our society. We even don't hesitate to pray right now for our leadership, both on, on federal and local levels. We pray for our health care professionals. We pray for our police officers and those who have to still work and who have to still clock in, despite all of the social distancing that's been encouraged to take place. We pray, Lord, for those who are elderly in our communities and for those who are impacted or at, are at a risk factor in one sort of way or another. I just ask for your keeping hand. God, we ask for your protection to take place in times like this. And I do pray, Lord, that your church would be able to rise at a time like this to this challenge and know that you are going to be that witness in and through your body. I thank you, Lord, that this is a time in which we cannot afford to divide, but we need to unite. We need to unite around your gospel. We need to unite around your work, your mission, and your kingdom purposes. I pray for the pastors and the local leaders scattered all throughout this Dallas area and our nation and this world and ask, Lord God, that you would grant wisdom, that you would give them grace to be able to know how to lead in times like these. We pray for households and, and parents who are around each other and with their kids. We pray for those students and the young children who are out of school and for those who are impacted in one way or another as a result of this pandemic, that God, you would intervene, that God, you would keep each and every one of these individuals. 
And until then, Lord God, we pray that you would help us to know how to continue to trust in you in times like these. May fear not be our driving force, but rather I pray for your faith to be what leads your body in times like these. We thank you, Father, and we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'd be remiss if I didn't take a moment at all to express just how much of an impact something like this that has taken place in the past week has been for many people. A number of people have, have lost jobs already. Others, even though they still have their jobs, have had them greatly impacted. And so economically, health-wise, and in every way, people have had to, have had to feel the impact of this virus and a lot of the decisions that our leadership on local and on federal levels have had to make. And I understand just how much this can impact not only us on a physical level, but even on a spiritual level. And there's been a lot of fear that we've had to counsel people through and walk people through. And my prayer is that as we have a chance as a church, week in and week out, to gather together for not only worship, but prayer, and also to open up God's Word, that you, along with myself, would find our hearts encouraged, and that we would know that there is a God who is ever-present, that this God is real. He's not some concept, that this isn't some philosophy that we lean upon, but that we lean upon an ever-present, living God who is prepared to walk with His people in everyday life, including this season of ours. In God's providence, we've been in the book of Ruth in the past number of weeks, and we've had a chance to see a time in which resembles every bit like the time in which we live in right now. And my pleasure and my delight and my desire is to want to open up God's Word and to turn together with you to the book of Ruth so that we can walk to, through this book together and be able to see what God has for us. The title of my message is Finding God in Our Losses. Finding God in Our Losses. Not our gains, but our our losses. A lot of times when we look at seasons and times like these that we find ourselves in, it's very tempting to, to think that surely God's not present in a time like this. God must be absent. But you'll be surprised to find out that God's not only available in times that we're quick to see Him in, He's also present in seasons like this. And I think that there are a lot of people who are in need of knowing that God is right there wherever you may be finding yourself in. In fact, the, the book of Ruth opens up in verse 1, chapter 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Number one, I want, the first point I want to bring up is that God doesn't exempt His people from suffering. God doesn't exempt His people from from, from suffering. I think this is important. I mean, we're in a time in which, in the book of Ruth, the context is the book of Judges. This is a time in which God's people were not in the best spiritual state. 
the backstory to the book of Judges really is the book of uh, the book of Ruth is the book of Judges. The book of Judges tells us that this was a time in which everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. This wasn't the children of Israel's highlight peak moment in the season, in their season in their walk with the Lord. This was their lowest point in their walk with God. And it was at this point that the book of Ruth captures this beautiful story. It's a little story, but it's a little story that communicates a bigger story. It's a story about a woman, a Moabite woman, who is outside of the people of God, but by God's grace is brought into and to be among the people of God. We're told that there was a famine that hit this particular land. And we know that famines, oftentimes, almost all the time, all throughout the, the book of the Bible, including the Old Testament, is an indication that things aren't going well. Oftentimes, God would use a famine to be able to communicate a spiritual lesson or a wake-up call to His people. This was an opportunity, a moment for the people of God to be able to see through this famine that things may not be right with my walk with the Lord. There may be something wrong at our spiritual state. Maybe we need to turn back to God. You see, God was using this famine as a way to be able to encourage His people to be able to come back to God. But instead of this famine leading Elimelech and his family and others back to God, Elimelech rather chose to lead the way by leaving Bethlehem in order to go to, to Moab. To Moab. Moab represents uh, that which is not consistent with the things of God. Moab is outside of the people of God. The Moabites were the ancient enemies of the people of God. And so Israel stands on one side, Moab stands on a whole other side. And yet, Elimelech, as a man of God, decides for himself and for his family to leave Bethlehem and to move to Moab. And Bethlehem, the, the Bible tells us, is a word that means house of bread. And so, strangely, the irony is that here in the house of bread, there's no bread. Here in Bethlehem, there's a famine. There's a famine. The very place that you would expect there to be food for God's people, there to be provision for God's people, is nowhere to be found. And Elimelech, along with the people of God, feel this at their pain point. This would almost be as if you were to walk into a Costco today, if you will, or a Sprint, and there'd be no bread, no food. The very thing that that store was designed to offer its people. In fact, we're right there, right now, with this virus. And here, Elimelech is there. And he decides to move to Moab. This isn't a good idea. No. Some people often ask, and I'm sure this may be the question of ours, is this God's judgment? Is it the case that every time a famine takes place, it means that there's sin in my life? And I, I think we've got two different groups always around us. You have those who, when famine or a COVID-19 or a virus or any sort of pestilence strikes, they're quick to say, ah, there's sin in your life. God must be judging you. And then there are those who are quick to look at something like this and say, you know what? There's nothing to learn from it. God couldn't be up to anything through it. And so what we need to realize is when we look at the Bible, we realize that there are times when famines do hit and it's the direct result of sin and rebellion and disobedience either in an individual's life or among the people of God as a whole. But there are also times in which there may be great trouble or suffering, if you will, that comes to an individual or a group, but it has nothing to do with the sins of that person. I think this is important. 
Because as, as the people of God, we need to be sure that we're wise and careful not to be too presumptuous, as though we know God's heart and God's mind. I mean, when you look at the book of Job, isn't that the story of the book of Job? As his quote-unquote friends showed up after having heard the suffering that hit Job's life. Their immediate conclusion was, surely Job, you've got hidden sin in your life. Come on, cough it up. Just come on and come clean so that all of this could be restored to you. And we learn from the book of Job that, no, it didn't have to do with anything in particular with Job's life per se, but that suffering marks this life as a whole so long as we're here. In John chapter 9, the man that was born blind was brought before Jesus by the religious leaders and they wanted to know, Jesus, tell us, why is this man blind? Is it because of his parents' sin or because of his sin? And what does Jesus say in John chapter 9? Neither. Neither. But so that the works of God might be revealed. So that God might be glorified. You see, we don't always know what the reason may be. But the point is that I believe God is trying to communicate to us is that it's important for me to be sensitive to what God is saying. So even though I may not be able to know whether it's something directly tied to my sin or my nation or my community's sin, or it is, there's always a message that God is trying to communicate. It's always an opportunity for me to pause and to ask God and for us to ask God, God, what are you saying? What about my life needs to be adjusted? Where exactly have I distanced myself from you? What parts of me are not trusting in you? Where are you not my priority? You see, instead of Elimelech leading the way by taking his family and saying, let's repent, let's turn to God, let's look to God, let's cry out to God and ask Him, what are you trying to say to us? He went the convenient route. I don't know if you can relate, but... I see so much of myself in Elimelech, and maybe you can relate to that as well. Is, let me ask you a question. When difficulty hits you, when God's discipline comes to you, when trials and suffering of no matter what size, whether it's, it's big or small, is beside the point, needless to say, when, when suffering or trial hits your life, are you more prone to, to go the route of comfort, like, say, Elimelech did, and find an easy way out? Or are you prepared to look to God, no matter how much it may cost you? You see, Elimelech went the route of ease, and he went to Moab. You see, we may not have a physical Moab to go to, but we all have our Moabs. Moab represents that place that is opposed to God. Moab represents that place where I'm at the center of my life, not God. Moab represents that way of thinking, that way of living, that way of believing that God has nothing to do with. And Elimelech chose to go that route. You know, the irony just continues. Elimelech means, my God is king. My God is king. So, so here we have a man by the name of, my God is king, wanting to be his own king by making his own decision. It wasn't God that led him to Moab. It was Elimelech that led Elimelech to Moab. And a lot of times that's what happens to us. It's not God who leads us to where he leads us. It's, it's we ourselves who lead us to where we lead us. And so our problems don't get better, worse to better. They get from bad to worse. 
And I believe God is trying to say something to us. Is it, is it wrong to move? Is it wrong to travel? No, unless God says so. That's the point. Is, is God leading me in this direction? And so we see here that God is not exempting His people from suffering. And as a result of that, what do we notice? Here they are in Moab, and now, after some short while, Elimelech dies. Elimelech dies. Interestingly, what was the very thing that Elimelech was trying to avoid in Bethlehem? Not dying. What ended up happening to Elimelech once he got to Moab? He died. What's the point? Here's the big idea. That death is in God's hands. But when our time is up, it's up. I think our nation and our churches and myself, we need to hear this message all over again because as we're scrambling to find the vaccine, as we're racing to, to try to oblige ourselves by obeying all sorts of precautions and, and ways to avoid ever being contaminated, as wonderful and as right as that is, you see, death ultimately, this world needs to hear this, is ultimately in God's hands. The Bible says that my days are numbered in this God's hands. You see, our world is opposed to death. Death is not natural. The Bible doesn't see death as natural. Death is the result of sin. In Romans 5 and 12, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, Through one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And therefore all have sinned, and so all have died. Death was not something that was supposed to be a part of Adam and Eve's experience prior to entering sin entering into the world. Death is not going to be your reality and mine once we enter into heaven and are in God's presence. Death is something that we're faced with here and now, and it's directly tied to sin. It's the very thing that God came to be able to rescue us from. And God here is trying to show us something through Naomi's loss of her husband. But Naomi, her husband, the Bible tells us, there it goes on and it says, Therefore, these took Moabite wives, that's Elimelech's sons, and the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion again died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Here we, we find ourselves in a situation where Naomi goes out with her husband to a new land, a new people, a new way of life, along with their sons. But by the time their decision has come to its end, she's left to herself. A widow, away from the land that she's known, in a foreign land, without any resources, without any home, without a man or a husband to be able to defend her and to provide for her, having to figure out where am I going to find any hope any help in a situation like this. Here, God's people having to experience this sort of amount of suffering. Yes, it's sad. You see, in their case, the suffering that they're witnessing is the result of their disobedience. And this is a point that I need to make because people often ask. Suffering sometimes comes to us in two folds. In one instance, it's the result of our disobedience and our choices that were avoidable. But sometimes suffering comes as a result not so much of my choices or my disobedience, but simply because of the world that I live in. 
I mean, after all, we live in a fallen world. And no matter whether you're a Christian or not, so long as you are here, Jesus himself was not exempt from suffering. You and I experience suffering. God did not, number one, exempt his people, is my point, from suffering. God won't exempt you and me from suffering. But the question I have to ask you is this. If you're experiencing suffering today, is that suffering that you're experiencing the direct result of your own disobedience, like we saw in the case of Elimelech choosing to go his own way? Or is the suffering or the trials that you're experiencing the result of just simply living in a fallen world? Either way, there's hope for you. There's hope for me. And that's my second point. Number two, not only does God not exempt us from suffering, God sustains His people in their suffering. Look with me at verse 6. The Bible says, Then she arose, speaking of Naomi, with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. So already we're seeing a turnaround take place. As bad as the news has been up till now, what are we learning? That God has decided to visit Bethlehem all over again. Even though the story begins with famine, which is a picture of God's discipline upon the people of God, now we're beginning to see a turnaround. And Naomi the text tells us, rises up. It's been, scholars tell us, well over a decade since Naomi has been in Moab. Plenty of time for her to search her heart, amen? Plenty of time to be able to take a good, hard look at what have I been up to? A lot like a lot of people right now. Maybe you're quarantined in an apartment. Maybe you're shot up in a house. You, you, you haven't been to a store, a school, a, a workplace, or any place. Bar or grill or restaurant for a while because of social restrictions. And I know a lot of people complain about concerts being postponed and restaurants closing early and sporting venues not opening up and movie theaters closed. But you know what? I think we could use this. Why not we ask, God, how can you take this poem, which I've got a lot of, and use it in my life to reconnect me to you again? I'm thankful that Naomi is choosing to do that. We've got a lot of time on our hands in Moab with no one who's a friend or family around her. All she has is herself and everything that she knows about herself and a God that she could call on if she chooses to. Maybe that's you. Where when you look around yourself, all you've got is yourself and maybe a few people in that home of yours and who you know about yourself and a God that you could call on to. My prayer is that we would use this time like Naomi is beginning to. The Bible tells us that she arose because of the good news that she heard about God visiting His people. This is a this is a great word that we hear. This is the first time that we see God showing up in His loving kindness, in His chesed kindness. This is the first time that we see Him beginning at this point since the beginning of this story to visit His people, not in judgment, not in discipline, but in kindness. You see, we see God's providence on display here in both His sovereignty and His goodness. When we talk about God's providence, we're not talking about God's miracles. I know a lot of us are, are familiar with God's miracles as we see them all laid out 
through the pages of Scripture. The miracles of God are the visible hand of God, if you will. That's where we see red seas pulsing, a voice coming forth from a bush, a fire burning but never burning out. That's where we see fire coming down from heaven, or Jesus himself walking on water, or raising the dead, or feeding thousands at one time. That's a miracle. And that's amazing. But the miracles are where God suspends the laws of nature. And he disrupts, and he intervenes in ways that are not normal, but a, a providence, on the other hand, is the visible, invisible hand of God. That's where God uses you and me and our personalities and our successes and our failures and our shortcomings and our good deeds and our sins, our weaknesses, our wrongs and our goods. And He turns them around and uses them for His glory, our good, and the good of those all around us. You see, even though Naomi and her family were in disobedience, God was present all along. God was working all along. God was fulfilling His purposes all along. I hope you're encouraged by that. You see, God's not just at work in my best days. God's at work even in my lowest days. You see, for God to accomplish His purposes in my life and in your life, those purposes are not dependent on me having it all together. Those purposes are dependent on who He is and how determined He is to accomplish His purposes. Aren't you thankful to have a God like that? Aren't you thankful to know that this God and His purposes and His kingdom will advance no matter what? That this thing that God is up to is, is not riding on me having it all together? I could sure use that many days. And I hope you're encouraged by that as well. And Naomi is beginning to discover that. And she's beginning to see God show up in this particular way. In verse 7, it tells us that she decided to set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah, verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord, again, deal kindly, there was that word again, deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Very sad, moving point in this particular story. Notice Naomi's at this point where she's beginning to make her way back to Bethlehem, a place and a people that she hasn't been to in over, over 10 years, maybe 20 years, we don't know. It'd almost be like being out of church for 10 plus years. Bethlehem represented God's presence and God's people. That's where God's church was, if you will. And here Naomi has been out of church for well over a decade. Maybe there's somebody tuning in through this stream who's been out of fellowship, away from God's presence, away from God's people, away from God's blessing for far too long. Even if it hasn't been 10 years, you know it's been long enough. And now she's having to find it within herself to get up and to find herself returning back to home, back to church. But she notices these two women are with her, and she's thinking to herself, it ain't going to be good for you. Y'all know that? These are Israelites. You worship other gods, I worship Yahweh. Your religion is one thing, my religion is about a whole other thing. 
Your people do things one way, my people do things a whole other way. And Naomi says to her, to her friends, to her sister, daughters-in-law, you know what, why don't you just return? Uh, some of us look at this and we're wondering, you know what, is that a good thing or a bad? You know, I think Naomi's heart is right. She means well. She, she loves these two young ladies. When she looks at herself, she says, look, I'm old. I don't see myself ever being able to perhaps marry again. I, I think my days are over. I'm too advanced in years to be able to see a turnaround take place. But you, you two are young. There's a good chance that you can still get married again. There's, there's a good chance that you can, you can have a new home and a new life and a new future. Why, why would you want to tag along with, with someone like, like me? Just go back. Go back to your home. Go back to your land. Go back to your gods. But... As far as I'm concerned, I, I don't have anything. I, I don't have anything to, to offer you. And so she tries her best to discourage them to return. And, and here they, they arrive at this point where the text tells us they together wept. They wept. You see, there, there was love there. That, that tells me that, that Naomi has had some sort of an impact on their life over these years, even though what may have started all of this off was on a wrong foot, they still saw God through her life. They still saw something attractive through her life. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That would be like you and me in a backslidden state where we're looking at our spiritual lives and our walk with the Lord and we're thinking to ourselves, oh man, embarrassing. I don't see my life a witness at all. I wouldn't want anyone to catch me in this particular season of my life, and God uses you anyway. And people are drawn to you anyway because of the God that is still in you. They were able to somehow or another look beyond Naomi to the God of Naomi. Isn't that encouraging? That with all of our flaws and our shortcomings, that God can make it possible for people to look beyond our flaws and our shortcomings and our hypocrisy to the God that we still are trusting in. And that's why it went fine. And here we see this point in the text. In verse 12, where she encourages them again, Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from for Mary, no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they again lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law in order to turn back. But Ruth clung to her. And so here we see them weeping all over again. At a point where they feel like this relationship that they thought was going to be for forever coming to an end. Naomi's having this closer conversation with these two daughters. And she's realizing, I'm about to get things right with God. It's been too long that I've been trying to do things my way. I'm trying to repent here. I'm trying to put God first, where he should have been all along. This is a decision that I've had time to sit down and count the cost and I don't want to bring you into that unless this is something that you're ready for. In fact, you're, you're better off just going back to your gods and to your people because 
Before God was a part of my life, I, I could see how we were relating, but I don't see how you could have anything to do. I think that's important for all of us to have closure conversations. Maybe you're at a place right now where you feel like what got you to this season of your life is not God, it's not His wisdom, it's not His word, it's not His will, but you're there anyway. And now here you're prepared to, to wake up like the prodigal son to where you are, and you're prepared to count the cost and make whatever decisions you've got to in order to get things right with God, but you're not too sure that everyone around you is prepared to count the same cost. And so, what do you need to do? You've got to have the same conversation that we see Naomi having with her daughters in law. Orpah hears her out, but she decides to go back to Moab. Ruth, on the other hand, hears her out as well. She says, You know what? I'm prepared to count the same cost that you are prepared to count Naomi. Whatever it's going to mean for you, I want it to mean for me. Whatever it's going to cost you, I want it to cost me. Whatever this is going to have to mean for us, not only here and now and today, but tomorrow, I want it to be the case for me. But look on the other hand, hears her out and decides to go, to go back to Moab. Which tells you and me what? That tears may be one thing on the surface, but they don't necessarily communicate where our heart is in relationship with God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians and 7 and 10 that worldly sorrow produces death. But godly sorrow leads to life everlasting. You see, there's, there's a kind of a, of a remorse, if you will, or a sorrow that looks very similar to godly sorrow on the surface. There are tears, there's regret, there's a, sorry I got caught, there's, oh no, there's, I won't do it again, there's, give me, the, give me another chance. There's all of that. But the difference between the two is this. In the case of the one, the person would have never been sorry unless they got caught, you see. In the case of the other, what leads to their sorry is the fact that God knows, and that's enough. That hurt God's heart, and that should be enough. You see, in the case of the one, they would have gone on just fine as they were if this conversation weren't had. But because Naomi chose to put her foot down, so to speak, and have this sort of closure conversation, it'd be like you if you were to have that conversation or any person with somebody that they're dating and they're saying, wait a second here, I'm a Christian. What am I doing dating a non-Christian? You know what? I've been at this for too long. I need to sit down with them and tell them, what I should have told them long ago. And here you are, and you say, look, I appreciate you, I love you, I care about you, but I'm a Christian, and I know you're not. And you've told me you're not ready to be. And I should have never been in this relationship to begin with. And I need you to know, if I'm going to continue to be a Christian, I'm going to call this relationship off. It's hard as that's going to mean for me. Because the most important thing in my life I can't stay with you. Imagine having this kind of conversation with someone that you've had maybe one, two, three, five, who knows, years of a, of a significant dating relationship with. You share memories, like Naomi has had time with Ruth and Orpah. And here she's ready to say, look, I don't know what this is going to mean. And let's say the person says, you know what? If that's what this is going to mean, I'm going back to my own. Are you prepared to come back to us? You see, this is how we know Naomi's beginning to turn around because she realizes to have this kind of 
a closer conversation with them, it may mean that she may not have them at all, ever again. But she realizes, so long as I have God, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. You see, I think a lot of people are not prepared to give up a lot of toxic and unhealthy relationships because they're not as convinced as Naomi finally, by, by God's grace, is prepared to be. Maybe I can put it another way. One of the ways that you will have the ability and the power to part with that unhealthy relationship, or whatever the case may be, is the day you realize that what God is going to offer you with a relationship with Him is going to be far better and far greater than any relationship you can have with another human being in His absence. It's better to have God and nobody like that than to have the world but not have God. And Naomi was prepared to come to that cross. Was it going to be a suffering? Sure. I mean, after all, she doesn't have her husband. She doesn't have her sons. She doesn't have her God. She doesn't have her church. She doesn't have her church family. She has no one. So you could imagine this thing could have turned around and unfolded in a whole nother way. Naomi, out of desperation, could have clung on to Orpah and Ruth, even if it came at a great cost to her relationship with God. But look, Naomi doesn't pursue her relationship with them out of desperation. How do we know? Because she's, she's having the kind of conversation that could potentially result in them walking away from her. She's actually giving them permission. I know mother-in-laws are the brunt of a lot of jokes in our day and age because they have a tendency to keep apron strings on and not let go of their children even after they get married to their daughter or son-in-law. And we see that happen a lot. But here's a, an unusual case where you have a mother-in-law wanting her daughter-in-law to go. And one says, I'm out. And the other one says, what does the text say? Ruth clung to her. Let me ask you a question. How much are you willing to pursue Christ, no matter the cost? Ruth says here in this famous words, you've seen it in marriages and at weddings and on wedding invitation cards, she says to her, Ruth says to her in verse 16, Don't urge me to leave you, Naomi, or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. That's beautiful. Ruth is saved. Ruth is saved. Not only is Naomi prepared to get right with God, Ruth is prepared to get right with God as well. This is a picture of conversion. Ruth is prepared to not only give up her people and her God for Naomi's people and Naomi's God, She's prepared to count whatever cost that's going to be. Let me ask you a question at this point. What sort of comfort are you ready to forego in order that you might go even more deeper in your relationship with God? Just think for a moment. How much Ruth has got to be prepared 
to suffer and to experience in order to make this decision. She is making a move with Naomi where the people that she's going to find herself with are not her people. The God that she's going to find them worshiping was not her God up to now. The religion, the language, the custom, the culture. She's going to be a foreign woman in a foreign land. Ruth says, let it be. No matter what it takes. In fact, she even goes so far as to say, even if it means death. Ruth doesn't just want Naomi. Ruth wants Naomi's God and Naomi's people. You see, that's what true Christianity is about. True Christianity is about not only wanting God, but also wanting God's people. Naomi is desirous of having God's presence and God's people. You see, when someone comes to faith in Christ, they're not just raising a hand to accept Jesus. They're entering into a living relationship with the living God. And as a result of that, they're also entering into a living relationship with that God's people. Do you love God? Do you love God so much so that you're prepared to count whatever cost it may mean to follow Him? Ruth did. Are you prepared to show your love for God through your love for God's people, no matter what you may get in return? We have no reason to believe what things are going to look like for Ruth and what she's going to experience and receive as a result of this decision. But you know what? She doesn't care. She wants Naomi's people and Naomi's God. Jesus said, this is my mother and my brother and my sister, those who do the will of my Father in heaven. The Bible tells us that we know that we have passed from death to life by our love for the brothers and the sisters. One of the ways in which I could know that God has truly done a supernatural work in my life by His Holy Spirit is by what sort of love I have for His people. You see, God doesn't just impact my relationship with Him vertically. God also changes my relationship with His people horizontally. And that's taking place right here as we see it with Naomi and with Ruth. You see, God doesn't just not exempt His people from suffering. God also sustains His people in their suffering. And lastly, God's will to His people, even while they're suffering. Look here as we conclude. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the Bible tells us the whole town was stirred because of them. And women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. You see, at this point, Naomi is acknowledging the fact that God has been present all along in her life, in both His discipline and in His mercy. You see, until and unless you and I are ready to see God present in our lives, in these two ways, we're missing out on Him. You see, Naomi, because Naomi was able to find God in her losses, and she lost her husband. She lost two sons. She lost everything. 
she's able now to find God in her game. The Bible tells us that it's about to be harvest season. And, and notice the irony here is uh, a chapter that begins with famine is ending with harvest. A chapter that begins with God's discipline is beginning with is ending with God's blessing. A chapter that begins with tragedy and, and death and loss is about to end with joy and birth and blessing. See, Naomi's at this point where she's hit rock bottom. Kind of like a place where many need to be. And she's acknowledging that I went out full only for the Lord to bring me back empty. How did she go out full? She went out full. She had a husband. She had two sons. She had a home. She had a family. She had her own family. They didn't go out full materially. After all, there was a famine. They were in trouble. She went out full of herself. Many of us know people who run out on the church full of themselves. Run out on some parents full of themselves. Many of us were that person who got where we eventually got because we thought we could do it better our way. You probably recall the prodigal son who, who comes to his father and he says, look, I want my inheritance right now. The one I'm supposed to get when you die, I want it now. I've got plans. I've got dreams. I've got goals. I know you're not happy with my life. I know you're not pleased with where I'm at right now as your son, but I don't care. I want to do my thing. And so what does the father do? He, he gives him his inheritance. And the son takes what's his and, and he leaves. And the Bible tells us he goes off to, to a far country only to, to live it up, if you will, for himself, to do his thing. You've got a lot of people right now who, who are where they are at right now. And what got them there is not God's will. It's not God's ways. It's not God's word. It's their will. It's their way. It's their own work. And they're suffering the consequences of those decisions. Naomi suffered the consequences of that decision, regardless of whether she was complicit in the decision Elimelech made or she just had to follow along as beside the point. She remained there even after his death, well over 10 years. Content with her own plans, her own dreams, her own goals. Even if someone were to say, well, have you looked to God? Have you prayed about it? Did you get it from His Word? Did you ask any pastor or, or trusted accountability partner for the decision you're about to make? What do you mean? Is where Naomi was. I don't need to do any of that. I'm doing my own thing. She went out full. But now, she's had a chance to taste the bitter fruit of going out full. By having the Lord bring her back what? Back full. Empty. Empty. The picture of humiliation being humbled. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but He gives grace to who? The humble. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the rich in spirit, no, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. There's something about being brought low, or to use Naomi's language, emptied. Because so long as I'm full of myself, I can never be full of God. I mean, imagine if I were to have a glass full of, of milk or, or any sort of drink. There's no way if you were to offer me a drink, I would be able to offer, pour anything into that glass unless I first emptied it. In the same way, so many of us are trying to find God in our losses, but we're not recognizing that we're too full 
I saw myself. And God is saying, before I could ever fill you with myself, I need to first empty you of everything that stands opposed to me. And Naomi was ready for that to take place. Let me ask you a question. Are you prepared to be brought as low or to be emptied as much as God would see fit, only for God to fill you with all of His presence, with all of His grace, with all of His goodness, with all of His will for your life? Because He is. You see, as Christians, we say the good God. God never disciplines us for the kids. I hope you understand that. Now, a lot of people have a wrong picture of, 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 of who God is. And who would even venture to say that Naomi is borderline thinking of it that way? Even though she's right to say that God was in control and behind everything that's been going on and that he's been using it, I almost get the impression that she wasn't pleased with it. And that she had a different idea as far as what God's motivation was for bringing it upon her life. But if God were to bring and deal affliction or discipline in our lives in any sort of way, the Bible tells us that the ones that He disciplines, He loves. One of the ways in which you can know you're a child of God is if you're experiencing this discipline in your life. God never disciplines for its own sake. He does so so that He might bring us to Himself and produce what He all, all the while wanted to produce in our lives. And that's what we see here in our text. So God not only not exempts His people from suffering, He explains His people in that suffering. And even more, God's prepared to be real to His people even while they're suffering. You see, the good news of the Gospel, as we see in Ruth, is this. That even though Elimelech was someone who ran away from Bethlehem out of a desire to meet his own comfort, he left the land of promise for the land of compromise. We serve a God who came in the flesh, and His name is Jesus Christ. And He didn't run away. He left. He left heaven in order to enter into this world, in order to suffer. The Bible calls Him the bread who's come down from heaven. Elimelech ran away from the house of bread. Jesus came to this earth to be that bread that would never leave us nor forsake us. You see, the good news, as it's found in the Gospel, is that you and I have a Jesus that we can come to. You and I have a Christ who has gone forward and suffered in our place in order to offer us a life that we would have never been able to have. So if you happen to be someone who's never known Christ, you've, you've never known what it means to, to be in a relationship with God, but you're on this spiritual journey, and you're trying to figure all this stuff out, and you would love to know exactly what that would look like, the first place that would begin is with you entering into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Come to Him. You see, Naomi represents someone who first knew God, but she walked away from God. And now she's ready to come back to God. And Ruth represents someone who never knew God to begin with. She's a Moabite. But by God's grace, we get to see that the gospel is not just for those that we think it's for, it's for those that we're even tempted to think it's not for. Ruth represents that person who's far from God, who's never grown up in the church, never grown up knowing anything about God or His Word or, or the Christian faith, but now, by His grace, is able to do so. So, whether you're somebody who has roots in the church, and for one reason or another, you've, you've kind of walked away, you've distanced yourself from God and from His people, this is an opportunity for you. You're a Naomi. 
And maybe you're someone like a Ruth where you, you've never had a relationship with God to begin with. You, you've never known anything. All of this is foreign to you. Like it's about to be foreign to Ruth as soon as she sets foot into Bethlehem. She's going to walk around and have to learn this for the first time. And maybe that's you. God's prepared to receive you to himself. Even though the, the message of the gospel is an exclusive message, because the only way you can come to God is through Jesus Christ, it's an inclusive message in that it's a message for all. And I want to leave that for you. And if you want to put your trust in Christ today by praying together with me, I want to pray together with you. And wherever you're at, I want you to join me, and I want you to pray this prayer sincerely. And it's not our prayers that save us, it's the God that we pray to who's the one who saves us. Will you join me? Father, we come before you right now, thanking you for your goodness and your grace, thanking you that you're both sovereign and good, that you have the ability to do something about our situation, and you desire to do something about our situation. I thank you that you're prepared to be the kind of God who is able to turn our losses into wins. Thank you that we can find you, not just in our gains, but also in our losses. Thank you, Lord God, that you don't exempt your people from suffering. But not because we enjoy suffering for its own sake, but because we know that you're always up to something in and through our sufferings. Thank you, Lord God, that as your people, we can have the encouragement and the hope of knowing that even when we pass through suffering, you are there to sustain us in our sufferings. God, we bless you and thank you that if there's a time and a season and a place where you're most real to your people, it's when we are suffering. It was there, Lord Jesus, that you had to experience relationship with your Father. It was there where you met us by coming and living and suffering in our place. The Bible tells us that we have a high priest with Jesus who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's able to sympathize with our sufferings, who was tempted and, and tested in every way like we were, yet without sin. God, I pray right now, I ask that if there is someone tuning in who who has been far from you, and it's been far too long since the last time they've been walking with you, but this is a season where they're prepared to come back to you. I pray right now that they would follow after me in this prayer. I pray, Lord God, for the person who perhaps has never known you to begin with, and, and all of this is, is new, and, and all of this is for starters for that person. I just want to encourage that person right now and ask that even they would follow me in this prayer. God, we come before you recognizing that you are sovereign and you are good. That you are the creator of everything that is, including ourselves. That we, when we were created by you, we were created in your image. That is, we were created to, to live for you, to, to reflect you, to, to mirror you, to wreck you here on this earth. But because of sin and because of our disobedience, we failed. And we decided to to live for ourselves and to represent our own interests, not your interests. But because you're good, God, you, what you failed to get out of us, you sent forth your son, born of a virgin, to live a life that we could never live. Only to eventually go forward and, and suffer and die a death. Not that your sins deserve, but our sins deserve. In order that we might experience forgiveness of all of our sins. And then you, three days later, you rose again from the dead in order to assure us that you have power even over death. So that anyone who puts their trust in you 
has the hope of knowing that death will never have the final word in my life. Thank you, Jesus, for conquering both sin and Satan and death. And thank you, Lord God, that by trusting in your Son, who you've given me, I can know today that I'm a Christian, that I'm saved, that I'm, I'm born again, that I, I can experience this new life. I can go forward from here, no longer having to look back, and that Jesus is prepared to make every bit of the difference in my life. I pray for that person right now. God, be with that person in Jesus' name. And Lord, as we go forward from this place, I pray for your keeping hand over your people. As this virus and this pandemic and this crisis continues to unfold, not knowing in which direction it's going to turn, God, we pray as a community, as a faith family over one another, and ask, Lord God, that you would protect your people, that you would look after those who mean something to us. Lord, that you would go after our loved ones and our family and our friends, our community, our neighbors, and that you would, your hand would be over their lives. And God, that you would reverse this pandemic and that we would see the light of day again and that this thing would be a thing of the past and that we would see your glory come out of this situation. God, use what we have passed through in ways that we could not imagine. May many come to know you and find you during this time of what has spoken losses to countless people, I pray. In 